show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go home. Hi, this is Thinking Drinking, a podcast about drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim, and I'm joined in the virtual pub by my drinking buddy, Illyri. What are you drinking and thinking about today, see? Wow, Tim. I can't do that. Uh, <laughs> <hi>. <laughs> I am drinking a glass of Chianti. <sighs> Can you guess what I'm thinking about? Um, is it uh, dogs on roller skates? <laughs> <sighs> Always. <laughs> and I Chianti. I happen to be thinking about Chianti. <laughs> Yay! I'm also drinking Chianti because oh. we're talking about Chianti. This was a very straightforward one to get right. It was like sometimes <laughs> sometimes we really miss the mark on um, what we've chosen to drink, but I felt like this one was inexcusable. We absolutely had to get some Chianti. I, to be precise, I have got some Chianti Classico. Um, I've got some co-op Chianti. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we'll get into that later then, probably. <laughs> um, I suppose what we should first address is that Chianti, in addition to being a wine, is also a region uh, within mm-hmm. Tuscany. Um, Tuscany is west, central, north Italy. That was a lot of directions, but it's, it's mostly between Florence, Siena, and Pisa, if you know Not where they to are. self. Never asked him for directions. It's yeah. Like west, well, it's west, sort north, of central, central, west, north. <laughs> Look, Italy, it's these kind of like, what can you say? It's like on an angle, isn't it? So when you sort of say it's west, that can also be quite east from somewhere else that's quite west. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> Look at a map, you know what I mean. Okay, so Google it. It's, it's been around this region. Just Google it, guys. Why are you listening to this when you could just Google it? Um, <laughs> it's been around this region. Initially, the region was known as the League of Chianti, which I think it still should be because that's very um, Marvel DC. Uh, it's been around as League of Chianti in, in various forms since the 13th century. Chianti started um, around that time, though, we know, as a white wine, not the red wine that it is today. Mm-hmm. It's constantly evolving as a recipe. I say it sort of started Chianti around the 13th century. Obviously, they were drinking wine long before then because viticulture can be traced back to the Etruscans in the 8th century BCE. Um, the Etruscans were the people who lived in Italy before it was Italy, before it was even the Roman Empire. You had the Etruscans. They've got the same etym- etymological root, actually. Um, Etrusci and Tusci. Etruscan and Tuscany. Uh, which <laughs> broadly means the people who built towers, we think. Because they like to make their homes on hills and precipices with high walls. So that's mm-hmm. what they were known as. So Chianti is not the grape, for those of you wondering. The grape is mostly Sangiovese. Although it can and usually is mixed uh, with others. So two-thirds of the grapes that are grown in Tuscany are Sangiovese. It's considered its spiritual home as a grape, if you like. Although, when we look at the genetic testing, not that I've done that personally because I wouldn't understand it, but the genetics (laughs) tell us that it comes originally from 
for the south of Italy. Um, and it's grown all over Italy because it's a very resilient grape. It can cope well with droughts, for example, so that's why it's good for the south. Um, but it particularly thrives in the rolling hills between the Apennine Mountains in the east and the Mediterranean coast on the west. Um, Sangiovese is known for being high in acidity and tannins, which is why Chianti is often aged in oak, because that helps to soften it. Um, so there you go. That is, in a nutshell, Chianti. End of episode. Thank you very much. Bye. I'm going to finish Bye this then. bottle now. Cheers. Let's, fin- <laughs> let's just finish these while um, everyone else takes that in. Mm. Glug, glug, glug. Here's something I was going to ask you. Are you familiar with the black cock? Intimately. Mm-hmm. What do you yeah. what do you know about the black cock? I don't think that's for this podcast, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll I'll tell you what I know then, and um, <laughs> you can tell me if it's uh, consistent with your experience. Uh, mm-hmm. Gallo Nero, as it's otherwise known, the legend of the black cock um, refers to a conflict between the cities of Florence and Siena. They both wanted claim to the Chianti region between their cities. So they devised a system to divide the land up fairly between them, which involved a knight riding from each city out at dawn uh, when the cock crowed. So the knight from Siena, they had a standard white cock who uh, crowed (laughs) at dawn, and the knight rode out at dawn expecting to meet the Florentine knight somewhere in the middle, right? But Florence is home to the Medici family. And if you don't know about the Medici family, do go and look them up. They're a proper soap story. They were very rich and into their arts and very powerful and influential and very cunning. So they had kept a black cock in solitary confinement without (laughs) food for three days. And the day before the night is due to ride out, they release it. At which point it crowed several hours before the one in Siena. So that meant that Florence took the vast majority of the prime Chianti region, which is why, legend has it, that the Chianti Classico is always signified by the black cock on the label. Well, I haven't got a black cock on mine. I could draw one. That's because (laughs) yours is not good. (laughs) Because mine was £6 from (laughs) co-op. It's gonna not, draw a black cock on there. It's not, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, to be clear, rooster. If you're American, if you were, con- if you're an American and you're confused, of course it's a rooster. Thanks for showing me your diagram. I don't even need to explain to the listeners what you just drew because we all know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there you go. If you if you don't want to read the label and you want a quick way to check where the classico is, just look for that black cock. Um, there are a few DOCGs, um, as we shall call them for a short form, uh, the Denominazione di Origine Controllata e Garantita, which means it's controlled, guaranteed origin of the region it comes from. Uh, but broadly, they fall into general, general Chianti, DOCG, like yours. So even though it's kind of on the lower end, let's say, it is still kind of guaranteed and controlled to come from that region and have that set recipe and all the rest of it. So it's not necessarily bad. It's just not from the Classico region. So Chianti Classico is the other kind of big section of DOCG. Those ones tend to be at a higher altitude and have a bit more complexity to their 
flavor and that's often why they're labeled as such but they throughout history they have been constantly changing territories recipes and terroir so that means there is a huge range of quality when it comes to chianti even though it is this you know docg labeled wine it, it varies tremendously right from the general chianti which can be anything from quite a nice fresh Rufina variety, which is a higher altitude for a general Chianti, to some really basic supermarket stuff. Pause for judgment. <clears throat> Shit. <laughs> <laughs> then Chianti Classico is a minimum of one year aged. And that region, as I say, mostly exists between Florence and Siena, around the villages there, like Greve. Um, the Classico Reserva is meant to be a step up from Classico. Two years of aging, which must include three months of aging in the bottle. And then the Classico Gran Selezione, uh, which is 30 months of aging, and it must be from a single estate. So it's been deemed the top terroir in the area. And that has only um, existed since 2014. So Chianti is kind of like constantly adding layers of superiority <laughs> onto its DOCG, which I think has been this battle to sort of reclaim its reputation from, from many years in the 20th century where it did not taste so good. Um, Baron Bettino Riccasoli, someone we should probably mention. He created the first known official Chianti recipe in 1872, uh, where he recommended 70% Sangiovese, uh, 15% Canaiolo and 15% Malvasia Bianco. So Chianti actually can be mixed with white grapes. It's not um, 100% red. Um, Baron Bettino Riccasoli became uh, Prime Minister of Italy as well. So um, kind of double ticks to his name. Uh, so in 1967 it was, the Denominazione di Origine Controllata, or DOC, so we're not, we haven't got the guarantee part on yet, we've just got DOC. Um, regulation was set by the Italian government, who established that his formula, the Riccasoli formula of Sangiovese-based blend, with 10 to 30% of Malvasia and Treviano. Um, some producers, however, were not keen on that. Uh, they wanted to make their own Chiantis, which might have included 100% Sangiovese wine or all red wine grape varieties, maybe with some French grapes in there, like Cabernet Sauvignon or Merlot to be used. So some people didn't want to put that extra bit of um, white grape into it. They went ahead and made their own Chianti, but of course they would have been prohibited from labelling it as Chianti. So they went ahead and labelled it as uh, vino, da, vino da Tavola, which means table wine. So despite then being kind of classified as quite a low wine, they were exporting it internationally and critics and consumers really liked this version. <laughs> they labelled it Super Tuscans rather than Chianti. And what that meant was that the success of those wines encouraged the government to reconsider uh, what they were going to allow when they moved up to DOCG regulations. And they then did allow some of those table wines to be labelled as Chiantis anyway. So, it keeps changing, the quality varies, uh, the best way to decide what you're going to get rather than looking at the label is just to taste a lot of them, find out what you like. <laughs> I could do that. Yeah, we can give that a go. And in fact, <laughs> I did give that a go in a very serious way, because there is such a thing called the Expo del Chianti Classico, which 
when this episode is released will have just happened. It's this year. It's the tenth to the twelfth of September. Uh, it's been going since the nineteen seventies, and it is organised by the municipality of Greve in Chianti. And this is the one that brings all the Chianti Classico municipalities to the village square in Greve, and they all share um, their kind of their latest creations. So mm. the experience is you 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 pay for um, a, a glass, like a you know a branded glass, which they give to you on this little sort of pouch that goes around your neck, and you just put your glass in this pouch so you can wander around stumbling, and you. Um, it's like uh, really get... high-end Mardi Gras. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite. Um, and you go around, so there's about 60 producers there and they've got hundreds of wines for you to taste. And the majority of them, you just walk up and go, I want to taste that. There are some, you know, like the classical Reserva ones, which are quite expensive. So you get a little card and you can choose 10 of the most expensive ones. You get a stamp, but you only pay like 10 euros or something for that. So if you want to, <laughs> you could just go and pay another 10 euros. Um and then in the square, they have live music and art and lots of food and they have historic tours and, you know, lots of ceremonies and things like that. And then you can book to go into individual wine cellars and sort of have private tastings from there. But you can go. So it's just like little market stalls that you wander up and down and chat to all the producers about what they've been doing. I discovered this by accident the first time <laughs> I went. So I was on holiday in Florence for a few days and you know Florence I love Florence it's a great big bustling city um, lots of art museums and you know good food and stuff to get a hold of but I thought you know it, in it's so close you're every, always so close to the countryside in Italy that's the thing you don't have to go very far to be fe- feeling like you're in the middle of nowhere and I knew it's on the edge of where well, it's in Tuscany and I thought for one of the afternoons I would just go and explore a bit of the countryside so um, as I don't drive or anything like that, I just got one of these sort of evening vineyard private tours where someone drives you around so you can do tastings. And I think it was just like me and a Polish couple. That was it. And um, <laughs> we we got driven out of Florence and we were on our way up to one of the vineyards in Tuscany. He's like, oh, actually, this is the it's the opening night for the Greven Chianti Festival. Do you want to swing by there for an hour? And we were like, well, yes, obviously. So he just dropped us off in the in the town square and we discovered, you know, all these counties, went around in an hour trying to taste as many as we could um, and then got back in the car and driven to this vineyard where I can't remember the name of the of the, of the guy of the vineyard that we went to for some reason. Um, but he was very nice, you know, showed us around his home. We sampled all his award-winning wines and he had um, a fox friend, I remember. It was like a wild fox, but had been sort of domesticated to the point where it just followed him around um followed him around the place and he would feed it, it i do vaguely so remember you messaging me this during <laughs> yeah. this and you were like I-, I think i need to marry this guy <laughs> i'm pretty sure you were like i mm-hmm. found the one <laughs> yeah he was the one he had a fox friend in a vineyard i mean what more do you want um <laughs> so that was beautiful and i thought wow that's incredible maybe i'll go back one day then about three years later i think it was and I was thinking, oh, where do I want to go for a break? And I thought, ooh, that festival. So um, I booked, a, a, just through Airbnb, a farm on the edge of um, Grev, like five minutes walk from the um, town square. It wasn't mm-hmm. very expensive. And, um, yeah, I went up there and stayed in this lovely farm. And for three days, all I did was sort of walk into 
the village square and try all of the Chianti's and then go home and eat bread and figs and whatever bottle of wine <laughs> I bought that day. Because I was on a farm when I arrived, actually, my um, Airbnb host had left like lots of their produce that they gathered. So she just left me like punnets of figs and plums um, and, you know, tomatoes and all sorts of things. Um, and I just went to the supermarket and bought some bread and then that was me for the weekend <laughs> just eating those things and whatever my favorite wine from the day was I would take that back with me and that was my sort of evening oh, it man, was I miss holidays delightful and the rolling mm. hin- hills are are stunning so mm. um so I've kind of I've, so I've been there twice and and tasted all these Chiantis but it's an experience I can heartily recommend and it wasn't too swamped with tourists or anything uh, yet. Yeah, it's funny because Chris and I went to Italy, um, must have been three or four years ago. We went to Bergamo, mm-hmm. which again isn't massively known with tourists. And yeah, we just fell in love with the place. It was just so quiet, lots of good food, lots of good wine. And we did vow from that holiday to spend more time in Italy in the like kind of not so touristy regions, just going and eating and drinking. So that's going to be... Oh, I'm going to have to put it on our list, aren't I? Put it on the list. Yeah, we'll go <laughs> Put it on the list. Yeah, it's actually quite easy to get to. So even though it's, um, you know, a, a village in the Chianti Classico region, uh, I figured out the transport the next time I was there rather than getting a driver. And mm-hmm. um, it's only an hour on the bus from Florence, and it's um, you don't mind when it's kind of that pretty rolling through the hills. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I did that. Delightful. It was delightful. Um, you did mention at the start of this chat that you were drinking the Classico, so mm. can you show me your cock? Do you know, I, I can't because I <laughs> so I started the bottle yesterday while I was doing some more research, <laughs> sort of some bonus things, and I only had a glass's worth left for today, so I emptied it onto the glass and I've already taken it down to recycling. <laughs> oh. Put your cock in the bin. I'm really sorry. I yeah, <laughs> my cock is already in the bin. I cannot show it to you. Never mind. I wish that was the first time I'd said that. <laughs> um. All right. Why don't you talk for a bit before I uh, get yes. into any more trouble? I will. I'd like to talk about an empty bottle, which is quite apt. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um. So, in a government building in Chicago, on a shelf you will find an empty jade green bottle of Bertoli Chianti. Okay. Have I broken uh, into this government building? Like, can I access it? Or <laughs> I mean, I, you can try. I, I didn't really research into that if anyone okay. had tried to steal it or anything. I don't know how heavily protected it is. Um, I don't think it's got any big monetary value to it. It's more of a sentimental value. Mm-hmm. So this bottle of wine was opened by a physicist called Enrico Fermi, uh, December the 2nd, 1942, to be exact, was when he opened it. And it was to toast the first controlled self-sustaining nuclear chain reaction. Mm -hmm. So uh, the bottle can be found, as I said, in this government building and the straw wrapper, which candy bottles are quite famous for, that kind of almost like a husk straw holder that the bottle sits in i'm going to tell it's you about that signed. later oh okay. i'm going to tell you more about that so uh Good. put a cork in it <laughs> um so that bottle straw wrapper has been signed by 49 people who witnessed the uh 
the chain reaction, which was under um, an old football stadium under the Chicago University in an abandoned squash court. Uh, so most of the signatures on there are quite faded. You can still make out E. Fermi, but one of the prominent ones next to E. Fermi is a guy called Ted Petri. And he gave uh, some interviews not that long ago. In 2017, he was talking about it, actually. Uh, so he was explaining how in 1942, as a teenager, he was recruited by the government to work on a secret project. He didn't really have any information on it. They just said it's to do with a war effort. Um, so he was just like, yeah, job's a job. I'll take it on. What he didn't know is that he was going to essentially be building an atomic pile <laughs> underneath a football stadium. So it was obviously part of the development, trying to trying to make nuclear weapons before Nazi Germany, essentially. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh and it's quite nice, the interviews that you read with this Ted guy, because he still is very kind of humble about it. He doesn't really, he says, I still can't really comprehend the enormity of like what I was a part of. As far as I was concerned, it was just a job. I was a labourer. I was stacking tons of wood. He said, the main thing I remember is not that like we changed history. It's just, it was hard work because mm. um, he was having to stack tons of wood uh, they had to move 45,000 granite, uh, graphite, graphite blocks that formed the kind of lattice structure. Um, they also used hydraulic um, presses to turn uranium powder into little baseball-sized spheres, which were kind of fueling the reactor. Um, and he, he just talks about it so casually. He's just like, yeah... I got paid, you know, something like $93 a month to just do this work. It was hard work. Never really asked any questions. Um, Camaraderie was very good. You didn't feel like anyone was above you or there was no kind of really strict rules. It was just, we all just cracked on. And he said there were a few weird things about the job, like when he went to the doctors because he wasn't feeling very well. His blood count was down massively. And they worked out it's because he was tra- delivering radioactive material in his back pocket. <laughs> so he had a chat with the scientists and they were like, yeah, keep it in this lead container instead of in your pocket. And mm-hmm. obviously that kind of made him feel a little bit better. Um, and also he said one day we went into work and there were guys jackhammering doorways into the side of this um, stadium. Big enough for people to fit through. And they were like, oh, well, that's what, what's that all about? And they said, right, if this pile goes critical and we can't control it, you just get out via those doors and you head for Indiana. <laughs> so they were like, OK, we'll crack on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he said one day they went to work, obviously Wednesday, 2nd of December. And he said it was a little bit different because there were lots of extra people there, lots of dignitaries, lots of scientists. They knew something was up. Um, They had finished assembling the 57th layer of the pile the night before, so they knew it was ready for testing, but I don't think they realised how quickly it would be ready and how much of a big deal it was because there were so many people there. Uh, So you said it was very quick, kind of one, two, three, and it was done. They all just kind of gathered on a balcony and then um, Fermi was down next to the pile and he did it very quickly and just kind of turned around and went, it worked. 
<laughs> and everyone was like cheering and a lot of the laborers who didn't still understand the enormity mm. of it or didn't really know what they were working on were a bit dumbfounded because the scientists and the dignitaries were going crazy celebrating and they were like yay <laughs> what have we achieved <laughs> um so it was at 3.25 p.m. to be precise, uh, when the splitting of a single uranium nucleus into a sustained chain reaction happened. Um, so they presented Fermi with a bottle of Chianti to celebrate and paper cups. Oh, they I'd forgotten toast. this was about wine. I was, I was <laughs> thinking so much about nuclear explosions. I'd forgotten we were actually talking about Chianti. Yes, no, yes, was... sorry, go on, tell me about the Chianti bit. <laughs> so they all had Chianti in... It was very specific. This Ted guy in his interview said it was paper cups of Chianti. I don't know if that mm-hmm. was for any particular reason, but paper cups, bottle of Chianti, and they were all asked to sign. And again, he said it was at that moment he felt like part of the team. There was nobody above him. There was no kind of pecking order. It was, we've all achieved this together. So they all signed the straw wrapper. Um, according to the records, more than a quarter of the 49 present there lived until their 90s um but it was ted was um ted petrie was the one who lasted the longest and he was actually completely unaware of that it was in 2017 the 75th anniversary of it he was doing these interviews they gave him the chance to see the bottle again which he thoroughly enjoyed um and yeah he didn't realize that when he was giving those interviews that he was the last guy Mm -hmm. alive um, he passed away in 2018, but he just sounded like such a nice guy. Because even in those interviews, they were saying, you know, that's such a huge piece of history. I bet you're really proud. And he was like, no, not really. It's not something I puff my chest about. Or like, he was like, my neighbours mm. don't know about it. I don't really talk about it. It was just a job. So despite carrying around radioactive material in his pocket, he made it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. He was it's so a... nonchalant about it. He was like, yeah, I was carrying radioactive stuff around in my pocket and couldn't work out why I was so ill. that's nice i think um i think bottles of well i think any beverage can evoke quite strong memories so your taste Mm -hmm. and smell of places you've been and things you've done it's nice to uh that other people can kind of share in that moment of that memory as well through that if you um if you google enrico fermi you'll find some nice pictures of him being reunited with the bottle nice um do you know what there have also been um some well, I was going to say scientists. They are sort of scientists, explorers from the Chianti region that were historic. Um, it's funny, actually. They both... These two kind of famous explorers both come from around the 15th century. They both come from the same area in the, in the Chianti Classico region, Chianti region, even though that region is landlocked. I mean, I know they're not far away from the Mediterranean, but it is. Um, so you've got Amerigo Vespucci, um, who some people might have heard of, and the other one I hadn't heard of until I'd been to Grev, um, called Giovanni di Varazzano, um, who were both in this, this area. So Amerigo, um, you might know his family home was in Monte Fiorale, which is just outside Grev and Chianti, where the, um, <laughs> you can see on their home, they've got their family logo, which is a Vespa. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, we're in 15th century. It's not a scooter. Uh, Vespa means wasp. <laughs> That's where that comes from. So their, their logo is a wasp. Um, Amerigo Vespucci has the honour of 
having the whole continent of America named after him. Um, he explored the east coast of South America between 1499 and 1502. Initially, he explored a part of Spain. You find this, a lot of explorers come from Italy, but have to do it on behalf of Spain, or then, as he did later, for Portugal. Um, and the first of his voyages was aboard a ship that, um, when I say discovered, I mean discovered for Europe, not as in people were living there. But for Europe, <laughs> Europeans discovered that South America extended much further south than they previously thought. Um, to be clear, he wasn't like the ship's master or commander or anything. He was an observer who wrote and published his accounts of the expeditions uh, in the very beginning of the 16th century. And then a few years after that, a guy called Martin Waldseemuller in 1507 produces this very famous world map. And for the first time, he's drawing a new continent, which is called America, which is the feminine form of Vespucci's first name, Amerigo. He sort of said, well, you know, um, uh, Europa and all that, they were all named after feminine forms. So he just feminized Amerigo's name. Why um, Amerigo Vespucci and not Christopher Columbus? Some people ask, especially people from the USA who um, a lot of them have not necessarily heard of Amerigo Vespucci and have heard of Columbus because <laughs> they have Columbus Day. Um, that's because although Christopher Columbus did go there in 1492, he didn't realise it was a separate continent. That's the difference between the two. So he sort of thought he was going out to, you know, West Indies. Um, Vespucci was like, travelled much further down and went, oh, this is a whole new continent. So that's why the continent's named after him. At least that's what Martin Waldseemuller argued even though he had his detractors and then the other one Giovanni di Verrazzano um, is mostly known for discovering discovering again um, that was air quotes for anyone who's listening um, <laughs> the Hudson River Bay um, by the Verrazzano Narrows Bridge which is a suspension bridge that connects the boroughs of Staten Island and Brooklyn in New York City uh, now not then obviously um, so he initially made landfall near what is now known as Cape Fear, moved northwards to Hudson Bay, which is now New York Harbour. Um, so he's mostly known for that one. He went on a few more voyages as well to the Americas, um, as far down as Brazil, where he went and um, did, some, did some logging. Uh, and then in 1528, he went to the Antilles, which was a really bad idea because there he was killed by natives, probably uh, Guadalupe, <laughs> we think. Um, but in the Chianti region, it's the Verrazzano family that's kind of better known. That's because uh, they were known for their quality wines, their quality Chianti. In fact, mm. in the centre of Greve, there is a statue commemorating um, uh, the explorer Verrazzano. Um, the, they had a, a beautiful vineyard, they had a big castle, it did fall into ruin over the years, but in 1958, it was uh, the vineyard was reimplanted and everything was kind of restored by the Capellini family. Um, and so now it's quite, quite famous again for their Chianti Classico wines and also the castle grounds um, being, you know, restored a bit, work has been undertaken. And now they host like events and, um, you know, musical events and performances and stuff. Um, in that area and it's got a lovely roof terrace and wine tours available you can even stay there on the grounds um you know next to the cheap. castle in the vineyard well you say that 
It's for um, four people to stay in an apartment. It's a hundred euros a night. Oh my god, that's going on the list as well. Yeah, so <laughs> you would be very surprised what you could get for your money if you go into slightly rural Tuscany. Because although it's absolutely stunning, it's just not full of tourists. Um, so yeah, that's and and funny enough, the first um, night I had in Grave at the festival when I was going around tasting and I was like, which one do I want to take home? And the one I picked that was like my favourite for the day, I didn't realise at the time was uh, a Chianti Classico from Verrazzano. And it even had his portrait on the bottle. And it was only when I was buying it, I was like, who is this guy? (laughs) And there's like a statue of him in the square. I'm talking to the guy who owns the vineyards, you know, the Capolinis. And they were like, well, this is Verrazzano. (laughs) And I was like... Who this? Because um, although I knew Amerigo, Vis- yeah, I knew Amerigo Vespucci, but I did not know this guy. So it was only after I bought the wine that I learned who he was. And like he told me, you know, I was I was there for about ten minutes asking questions about exploration and stuff, and then I went home and drank the beautiful, beautiful wine. Um, but there you go. I learned I learned that exploration specifically through that bottle of wine. But I picked it out as my favourite of the day, and then then learned all that history from it. Yum. Yeah. Isn't booze great? Yep. You can learn so much from it. <laughs> Hence well, the podcast. We've squeezed a lot of podcasts out of it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you can't get it in this country, which really annoys me. No. <laughs> I know. I think I think they'll do, like, international delivery if you order an entire crate. So, you know. My birthday's just gone, unfortunately, but Christmas is coming. Ahem, <laughs> 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 ahem. <laughs> All right, back to you for a bit while I pretend that that's what I'm drinking. (laughs) I can't believe we've got this far without mentioning Silence of the Lambs. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) That looked worse than it sounded on on video. Yep, it really did. (laughs) Ah, So obviously everyone knows the famous line. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Mm. So I didn't know this until I started researching for this podcast, that there is a kind of reason behind that rather eccentric choice of menu. Mm-hmm. Did, you, did you know this? I don't know if it's like a fan theory or I'm going to let but... you talk first, then I'm going to talk. <laughs> um, so what I read, and I, 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 it did feel a little bit tenuous, Um mm-hmm. But people were saying it's kind of like, it's either a, a medical joke or a bit of a dark joke or just his way of trying to creep people out. Um, but basically, um, the medication that he should have been receiving for his illnesses, um, some of the things that you can't eat um, or drink whilst taking them include things like liver, game, Pulses, beans, alcohol, wine. So those three things would be an absolute no-no if he was taking medication. Um, so it's either is his way of making a joke or his way of saying, I'm not taking my meds. That's a theory that I read online, mm-hmm. which felt very tenuous, but I thought, yeah, I, I, I guess it's doable. Are you are you done on that statement? Shall I tear it apart with science or do you want to add anything else? <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready. Roast me. <laughs> Okay, so first of all, the study that that's quoting said Chianti and Vermouth um, 
liver and uh, bean curd as the things. Now, mm-hmm. uh, first of all, why why Chianti specifically as opposed to other Sangiovese-based wines? I'm not sure that makes sense. Second of all, in the book, as you're probably going to mention, it's not Chianti, it's something else anyway. So mm-hmm. it's not like it was an intent by the author. Um, thirdly, he talks about that at, at a time before he was caught. So if he was going to do that then, sort of that, that doesn't make sense. Like he wouldn't have been on medication at that point when he was uh. doing those things. So, cause it was, you know, he's talking about something that happened before he got caught. Fourthly, <laughs> the medication <laughs> that that report refers to as in, you know, don't don't have too much iron or, or, um, uh, or these things that are present in, in red wine. Um, refers to a medication that is prescribed for depression, which mm-hmm. Hannibal Lecter did not have. He was diagnosed as a psychopath. There is no medication that treats psychopathy. There's medication that can treat associated symptoms around, you know, um, uh, psychosis or, or other things like that. But for psychopathy and sociopathy, there actually is no medication. Myth busted. There we go. Another (laughs) another session of myth busting on thinking drinking. (laughs) We need a little jingle for myth busting. We do. Shall I write one? Yeah. Fuck you, that's a lie. (laughs) Myth busted. Myth busted. But you're you're right, like this is a very, very common belief. It is I I saw it written up as an article in The Independent not long ago. Mm-hmm. They were like, this is a thing you might not know. And I'm like, you're a journalist. Do well, your homework. Why, that's why I was very careful about the way I said it and presented it and worded it because I, I found it on Reddit and I was like, nah. <laughs> as soon as you started talking, you were looking at me like, you're going to say something, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I knew. I was like, this is on Reddit. It's probably bullshit. <laughs> but I'm going to use it. <laughs> it wasn't just on Reddit. It was it was published in national newspapers as fact. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad they didn't the see that because I would have been way more confident about it. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, not not everyone goes to the original medical report and goes, let me just have a look at this. <laughs> <laughs> no, they just get angry on Twitter. Yeah. Um, You did mention about how in the movie it's Chianti and in the book it's something else. Mm. So I would like to chat about that, actually. Uh, in the book, it is Amarone. And to to give you the long name, it's Amarone della Vallapolligella. Mm. which is a much bolder red wine than Chianti. Um, a lot of people say they just kind of chose a pedestrianised wine for the movie that people might have heard of or may be able to buy themselves. Um, but in the book, it was the Amarone wine. So um, Amarone is made in the Venetian region of Italy. It's a dry red wine made with grapes that are dried on racks, which bring out their flavour. Uh, in 1991, it was granted its own designation of c- controlled origin, DOC, and it's the fourth biggest seller in Italy. That's behind Chianti, Asti, and Suave. Um, flavors generally for the like average one, there's a few different um, variations, obviously, but uh, the flavors are tobacco and fig. Mm. Um, it can be drunk young whilst it's still a ruby purple colour, 
but it ages extremely well to a dark garnet for 30 years or more. The average kind of age that you would buy and drink, though, is around 10 years. Uh, have you had a glass or a bottle? Did you have that at all in Italy in your adventures? I don't recall having an Amarone at all. Um, so honestly, no, because when I was in the Veneto region, um, I was mostly on Prosecco, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> up, around, up around, as we have covered in a very, very early episode. Um, so no, but I, I agree with the idea that it was changed to make it easier for people to understand because clearly mm-hmm. it is. Everyone's mm-hmm. heard of Chianti and they're like Amarone, not yeah. so much. It was a good decision to change it. Also, you know, Amarone being in the Veneto region, but in the, one of the sequel, in Hannibal, the sequel book, he is mm-hmm. in Tuscany. Does he go to Tuscany at the very end of Science of Lambs? So it would make sense mm. that it was a Tuscan wine rather than a Venetian wine if he's spending time in Tuscany. I don't know. Perhaps that's why they changed it. and they Maybe. Perhaps they're being too hard on them. Perhaps instead of pedestrianising it, they've gone, actually, we need a Tuscan wine to make mm-hmm. this more believable. Just thinking about the sequels. Get on Reddit. Put your theory in there. Pass. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I do have one other drink I would like to talk about. Uh-huh. It is a little bit tenuous. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but it felt fitting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's produced by a brewery in Edinburgh okay. called Barney's Beer. I know you're a big fan of Scotland, so... Yeah. Uh, have you come across I didn't. Barney's I did not expect... No, I, I haven't come across that, and I did not expect Scotland to come into this episode on Chianti, but it hit me. <laughs> I know, Scotland, beer, what? Uh, so, Barney's Beer Brewery have made an eco-friendly beer that is made with fava beans. Oh, okay. Um, so, it's part of a research project to try and find new ways to use fava beans. They're commonly used as animal feed. Um, so, so the fava beans are obviously otherwise known as broad beans. Yeah. Uh, they can be sustainably grown using nitrogen-based fertilizers, uh, without using nitrogen-based mm-hmm. fertilizers. So they are more eco-friendly in that sense. Um, so because they're used as animal feed, Barney's beer, uh, they they realise that there is an opportunity there to use them get some goodness out of them, get some use out of them before they're shipped off as animal feed, just to try and mm-hmm. get more use out of them. So they were using 40% fava beans to produce this IPA. Um, the project, it was about six years in the making. They had a few prototypes. I think the first one was called Tundra IPA. The second one, which I really like the name of, is Fee-Fi-Fo. Um <laughs> And then the one that they kind of commercially launched in 2019 was called Cool Beans. Um, and so, yeah, it, I, unfortunately, I don't think they make it anymore. So it was about six years in the making. And in 2019, they launched it as Cool Beans as a vegan and gluten free, eco friendly beer that was slightly healthier as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I couldn't find any trace of it to buy online. So I'm assuming. For whatever reason, it didn't Aww, go down well. That's right. but, um, I'm a big fan of broad beans. 
Yeah, I'm, I, it, it might be worth looking into. Um, I didn't do too much research because I thought it's a bit tenuous. I don't want to go on about it for too long. <laughs> but, no, um, I like it. It's it's it'd an be alternative. Good to see. If you if you're watching Silence of the Lambs and you're not a wine fan, now you have a second option. There you go, a fava bean beer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nice, <laughs> thank you. Uh, shall I come back to the um, the baskets? Sure. The so, straw. Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't know quite what you were on about, but I've got the, it now. <laughs> the straw wine basket. So the iconic um, Chianti bottles that are wrapped in like a little straw basket. So they are called fiascos. Well, no. That one is called a fiasco. Many are called a fiaschi. I should be proper with the Italian plurals rather than the English <laughs> versions of Italian plurals. So it's called a fiasco. Um, is that a term you're familiar with, fiasco? I've had many a fiasco. <laughs> <laughs> Thought so. Um, so it's typically, actually not straw, it's made from swamp weed or sala. And it's sun-dried and then it's blanched with sulphur. And the original idea is that the basket provides protection while it's being transported and handled. Um, and it also gives the bottle a flat base. So that means that when the glass bottles were being blown, they could have round bottoms. I was just pausing to see if you would laugh at that phrase. I'm not biting. Um, I'm not no, biting. Nope, she's not. She's not. Blown and round bottoms did nothing for her. Um, so it's it's just an easier way of glass blowing um, if you make round bottoms flasks than having to flatten them. So it was cheaper. So fiaschi. Um, could then be efficiently packed for transport and what they would do is put the uh, invert some of the bottles and tuck them into the spaces between the baskets of the upright ones so they could pack really well um, they've probably been doing that well they've definitely been doing that since the 14th century because we can see that in paintings it's depicted in art it's probably as old as Chianti's mentioned though so I reckon it's probably more likely 13th century um, throughout its history um, fiasco have been found on tables of everyone so when you said actually in your example of you know everyone was drinking it and celebrating the success of the nuclear reaction um, mm -hmm. it, no matter what they might think of it now in Italy as being kind of a bit of a peasant's table drink when it first started everyone would be using that from peasants to the Pope mm -hmm. then they had this decree in 1574 that said that actually you've got to have a fixed capacity for the bottles, mezzo quarto, um, and it had to be kind of certified by a lead seal, which would be applied to the straw covering. And the straw covering used to cover the whole bottle, like all, all around it, and it would have this lead seal on. But then producers, less reputable producers, started reusing those baskets from the discarded um, the certified fiaschi and they would put it on substandard bottles so what they then had to do to try and avoid that fraud from 1618 they specified that the seal had to be applied to the glass bottle itself but even then people found a way around it so three years later 1621 they said that the bottle's mouth had to be sealed with molten lead first of all lead on your drink great idea um, second of all, it meant that the straw coverings had to be reduced. So it's, it leaves that the neck and the shoulder of the bottle is bare 
and the basket is just around kind of the, um, uh, the the round base of it and that's the version that persists to this day even though obviously we don't use lead ceiling on top of a Chianti bottle anymore. So that basket is DOC. So you will only find Fiasco on Chianti. But it's not commonly used anymore in Italy for storing and selling wine. Um, it's, it's used nowadays it's just really for souvenirs for tourists or to be a decorative item in restaurants and kitchens. If you find a Chianti with the, uh, the straw basket, it's likely not one that Italians themselves would actually drink. Um, so as f in, in terms of fiasco as a term, that use of it definitely predates what we come to know of it, meaning a disaster. So <laughs> we got it from the French, who got it from the Italians. Uh, far fiasco it means to make a bottle. And we know that they used it to refer specifically um, to a theatrical failure. So somewhat, if they're watching a performance and it went horribly wrong, they would call it making a bottle of it. Uh, when the term fiasco entered English in the mid-1800s, the references we have to it, it is still meaning a failure or breakdown in a, in a dramatic or musical performance. So it's still referring specifically to that kind of disaster. Where it comes from, though, that, that meaning of why, why make a bottle means theatrical performance, we are not sure. We do not know. There are a couple of main theories. Um, one is that the Venetian uh, glass crafters would throw away imperfect pieces and then they would use that, that, those leftovers, to make common flasks afterwards. So if you messed something up, you'd be like, oh, I'll turn it to a flask later. So that could <laughs> be it. But there's also an entry in Italian dictionary that says, fare il fiasco used to mean to play a game so that the one that loses will pay the fiasco. So if you mess up, you have to buy the next bottle. Yeah. Could be either of those, really. Um, I like yeah. the uh, the one where you lose the game and you have to buy the bottle, for obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> but it, it could be either of them. It I think may... perhaps we should write to Susie Dent and ask. Yeah. She might know. Well... She might tell you the same thing as me, which is that we don't know. It could be either of those two things, because then you've got more to say in Dictionary Corner rather than just, oh, it means this. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it would free. be better if feel she free. just went, don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. What it did make me think of, though, which I don't know whether Susie Dent will include, um, is the phrase bottle it. He bottles it. Yeah. Being quite an, an English phrase. And I thought, I wonder if they're related um, yeah. You know, it's a fiasco, how we bottled it. Um, but what I discovered is that bottle it is Cockney rhyming slang. Um, bottle and glass is what it's short for, which means <laughs> arse. So originally, if you lost your bottle, you'd be so scared that you lose control of your bowels. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's been shortened down to bottle it. <laughs> you asked. That is, it. I love it. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure whether she'd have done that one. She might have. Um, so that that's fiasco and uh, and bottles. There was another drink actually that I wanted to tell you about, um, slightly related, but off on a tangent. But this is another drink that I actually did have when I was over in Chianti. I didn't just drink Chianti. There were times when I was like, mm, maybe I should have something that tastes slightly different, so I can refresh my palate. <laughs> and uh, you know, some people might go for water or coffee. I went for Vinsanto. <laughs> Vinsanto means holy wine. 
and uh, it's sort of a, it's an Italian dessert wine, which is very traditional in Tuscany. They are made usually from white grape varieties, uh, Trebbiano and the Malvasia. So those are the white grape varieties that get added to Chianti. Sometimes it is made with a bit of Sangiovese, like much like the composition of Chianti, um, and that will produce a rosé style of Vinsanto known as Occhio di Pernice, which means Eye of the Partridge. Um, these wines, a little bit like you described with Amarone, can be described as straw wines because they're dried, but the grapes are harvested and dried first, either on straw mats, straw wines, um, in a warm, well-ventilated place, or um, it or can be you know hung on racks to dry it as well. So although it's technically a dessert wine, a Vinsanto can vary in sweetness levels a lot. It can be bone dry like a Fino Sherry to extremely sweet. Um, it is delicious. I feel like people don't drink dessert wines enough. Yeah, I'm I'm always put off by them. I think I've had a couple and I've not enjoyed any of them and I've just written it off as a I don't like dessert wines. You've got to have it at the right time. You've got to have it after a meal instead of a dessert. And oh, that's where dessert. I think a lot of British people <laughs> fall down because we are renowned for our you know, heavy, <laughs> heavy desserts. Um, but it, it was it was it was a lovely uh, thing to have out there, especially because everyone was having it. Um, that's the thing. In Italy, they have the best desserts. I mean, nothing, nothing on earth beats a good tiramisu. <laughs> it's so good. Sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah, well, you could have it with that. You could have one that you know is is completely dry, for example, with your with your dessert. But anyway, it's very nice. I encourage you to try it. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up about Vinsanto is even more options for origins of why it's called Vinsanto. Not just two, but I think I've got mm, five uh, <laughs> options here. So take your pick. Um, first one. When the Greek island of Santorini came under rule of the Ottoman Empire, the ruling Turks encouraged the island's wine production um, of this sweet dessert wine made from dried grapes. Over the next few centuries, the wine became known as Vinsanto and was exported to Russia, where it became a principal wine in the celebration of mass for the Russian Orthodox Church. Hence the popularisation of holy wine. Another one. Uh, another one is that the island of Santorini was ruled by Venice and packages sent from Santorini to Venice were labelled as Santo to denote their origin and their contents were labelled Van, thus the term Vinsanto, possibly. Uh, next story is that um, it comes from a 14th century friar from the province of Siena who would use his leftover wine from mass to cure the sick. And the miraculous healing became associated with the santo, or holy wine, and the name Vincento was born. Another theory is that it's um, because they traditionally started fermenting around All Saints Day, um, and they would bottle the wine during Easter week. And then, finally, uh, there's a 15th century story involving a guy called John Bessarion, who was a patriarch of the Greek or uh, Eastern Orthodox Church. And... According to um, according to legend, in 1439, a local Florentine wine um, called Vin Preto, uh, pure wine, that means, was served. And he tried the wine, and he liked it, and said it was like Xanthos, which is a famous straw wine from Thrace. Um, although some sources 
told a similar story and said it was xantho, which means yellow. <laughs> uh, so the Florentine local, locals, either way, thought whether it was xanthos or that xantho, said that they had heard it as santo and accordingly started promoting the wine as holy wine. Whew. Lots of versions there, which I think means we don't know. <laughs> um, I think... Have you tried I, on looking on Reddit? <laughs> no, I haven't. I haven't yet asked Reddit. There lies the answer to your questions. Mm. It feels like because it's um, a, a word that can be so easily interpreted in in a couple of different ways, as in wine from Santo Santorini or holy wine. It feels like both probably happened around the same time. That people yeah. would very easily misinterpret one and just go, "Oh, that's our tradition now," and then hundreds of years later, it's actually both. I don't think it was even a misinterpretation. I think it's those marketing bastards again. It's those. It's always those marketing bastards. Those, <laughs> those fifteenth-century marketing bastards. Um, <laughs> one thing I wanted to end on, which I have no information on, <laughs> so I'm going to leave this. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to put a link in the show notes, and you can go and find it for yourself. But uh, when I was yeah. doing my research, I encountered the Chianti song, oh. and I was like. I bet this is like some traditional folk song. I bet there's a whole history to this. I googled and googled and reddited, and all I know is that it's it was written by a German guy called Gerhard Winkler in the early 20th century. <laughs> the lyrics are German; it's not Italian. It's all about. It just says yes, yes, Chianti wine. We love Chianti wine. Let's drink and toast and all this sort of stuff. But all I can find through Google are endless YouTube clips of Andre Rieu playing it. It's like just turning on Sky Arts. So if you ever watch Sky Arts, like occasionally have something yeah. good, but ninety percent of it is Andre Ryu, and um, <laughs> <laughs> the Andre Ryu channel, and that's all I can find is Andre Ryu kind of pulling faces while while some tenors sing this song about Chianti, which for some reason is in German. Anyway, I'll put the link in. Go and find it for yourself. I can't find out why or any history behind it. Do you think so we could add it to our um, karaoke repertoire? Is it a banger? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think we could probably an- add it to your um, your drinking Spotify playlist. I think it fits Great. in well next next to Chumba Wumba. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's all I got for you. That is all I got. Sorry to end on such a weird note, but I didn't know where else to put that little factoid. I love it. End note is I'll oh, just Google it. <laughs> yeah, just, guys, just just follow the link, look it up, and figure it out for yourself. Now, like how we started, just Google it. Anything to close on? circle. No, I think that's perfect. (laughs) And so our glasses have run dry and the beans have been eaten, which means it's finally time to take that census. Um, As I say that, I realise you didn't do the full line where he says, (laughs) where he says, a census taker tried to mess with me and I ate his liver with uh, fava beans and a nice Chianti. (laughs) You didn't do the census taker bit, so that closing makes no sense. It's a three but grand fine for him. If you, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you will be fined if you don't. You can't just eat a guy's liver. You need to do, folks. You need to do the census. It's important for us to learn about new demographics. Um, I, do you know what? I've got a tote bag that the Office of National Statistics gave to me. What for doing your census? No, for doing other things for them. But um, 
Anyway. Um, so, <laughs> our glasses have run dry and the beans have been eaten, which means it's finally time to take that census. I'm not rewriting it, they can just deal with it. Cheers, everybody! Salute! Chin chin! <laughs> the messiest end ever. <laughs> <laughs> it's the name of your sex tape. God. <laughs> Beautiful.